Welcome to this week's edition of Bowl Season Stories. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And each week, different guests from the world of college football join me to talk about current topics in the sport, as well as discuss what they remember most about their bowl game experiences. Our guests include members of the media, former players, coaches, sports executives, and even fans who will share their favorite bowl season stories with you. Today, we are joined by National College football writer Nicole Auerbach from The Athletic and three-time Super Bowl champion, NFL analyst, and fellow Syracuse alum, Daryl Moose Johnston. And lastly, but not least, Duke's Mayo Bowl Executive Director, Danny Morrison. Also joining me as she does each week is our on-air producer, Angela Lang. Angela, did you watch those games this weekend? College football is back. (laughs) All weekend. That was what's on my TV all weekend. Several straight days of games and some really uh, exciting finishes for some of those uh, big key mark matchups. I want to get right into it. As you mentioned, Nicole Arbach, senior writer for The Athletic, is here to join us and love to get y'all's take back and forth on the week. And uh, Nicole covers college football. She's actually the 2020 National Sports Writer of the Year by the National Sports Media Association. So we're super excited to have her, the youngest national uh, winner of this award. So Nicole, welcome to the show. We know you have a great perspective on what we saw this weekend. Yeah, thanks for for having me. And it was really fun. I was on my couch because it's so hard when you cover a game sometimes to keep up with everything else that is happening everywhere else. So I am going to go to Oregon, Ohio State, and that will be my return to the stadium life. Um, But I basically sat on my couch for what, five days straight and watched all of these games. And it was amazing. I think my favorite moments, I mean, obviously Mackenzie Milton and the the Disney-esque movie that he was basically putting on for us and that dramatic comeback. But I think it was also enter Sandman at Virginia Tech and jump around at Wisconsin. It was, it was the atmospheres of these games that I think we knew we were missing them last year. It definitely felt like we were, but to have them back just was so, it was like, it was refreshing. It was inspiring. It would just, it just felt great. Yeah, I agree, Nicole. I, I, uh, I did the same thing you did. You know, I was contemplating going to a game. I can't wait to get back into a stadium, but this first week I said, you know, there's too many I want to see. I want to sit on my couch and soak them all in. I'm, I too, I'm going to be going to a game this weekend. I'm right down the road from my house. I'm going to see uh, Air Force Navy, uh, great rivalry game on 9-11. So I'm looking forward to that. But, but this weekend, I, I, you know, I had two takeaways for me. I thought the number of, of quality matchups and great games for week one uh, was something I took note of. You know, I, I, it doesn't seem like we've seen a lot of that in recent years. And, you know, I don't know, maybe that was a product of, of uh, like you said, people missing college football, missing the atmosphere, missing those kind of matchups. And maybe there was a more willingness for teams to play those games early on. And, and the pageantry, the fans, like you said, I, I think the announcers of that Virginia tech game, and then the Wisconsin game too, over on Fox did a great job of saying nothing during those segments of the game. They, they let the enter Sandman uh, unfold uninterrupted. They, they let the jump around happen. Uh, and, and the camera crews did a great job of capturing that on air. And, and uh, that, the, those, those moments gave me chills. Yeah, I, I am, I'm with you on the, on the games themselves. I mean, we know that these things get scheduled years in advance. So it, it was certainly, you know, years in the works. But I mean, we would love to see Clemson, Georgia open the season every single year. I thought Maryland, West Virginia was a great game and obviously very like geographical. You know, you could get a lot of fans to 
from both sides to those games. Um, and I also think that one thing that really helped was there was a lot of conference games. We had a lot of ACC games and Big Ten games. And I, I think that was really helpful, too, because we actually learned about some of these teams. Like we learned about Iowa and Indiana because they played a conference game right out of the gate and Wisconsin, Penn State and all these things that I like that, too. I like sprinkling in actual conference games that are going to count for something for these teams. Yeah, I agree with you that we mentioned that uh, Virginia Tech game, you know, Virginia, North Carolina, that early in the yeah. year uh, was was pretty cool to see. And, you know, you, you reminded me of something I, I, I'm in my mind. I'm thinking of my co- conference office days at the Big East. I uh, Jim Phillips, a new commissioner at the ACC, was interviewed. I think it was during the, the Georgia Clemson game. And he, he, somebody asked him a question about what a blow it is to his conference that North Carolina lost. And, and he answered it very eloquently, but I'm, I'm my, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, it was one of his teams that, that beat right. North Carolina. So, you know, how, how, how bad could that be? It, it, that's always the, uh, the debate in a, uh, within a conference, right? If you have one team that's ranked, do you want that team to keep winning or is it good to have more balance in your league and another team win? And uh, either way, I thought that was a great showcase for the ACC that day. Yeah, I, I'm with you too. I mean, I think you you don't want your you know marquee teams to to lose or to be out of a playoff race or, or whatever that might look like. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely a big win for Virginia Tech, and that's also important for the ACC. So it's you know you're trying to you're trying to figure that stuff out. I mean, I also just think it was a weird weekend where a lot of teams we had high expectations with struggled and looked rusty and looked like it was week one. And there were very few teams like I'm pretty sure we all feel good about Alabama. They're going to be very, very good again. Uh, Outside of them, like we didn't, you know, there were a lot of teams that were still going to wait and see what they work through their issues. So, uh, you know, I don't think North Carolina was was alone in that from week one either. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's not just about the heavyweights. You know, I enjoy some of the seeing some of the newer emerging programs continue to have success. You know, Coastal Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a great year last year. They 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 won their first game and uh, I'll be, they're ranked pretty high, you know, to start the season, which is different than last year. They had to earn their way in. Now they're just uh, going out there each Saturday, you know, proving that they belong. Uh, Cincinnati, you know, is is a, an, another, um, you know, group of five team that uh, may may soon be a power five team. Well, well that's a different topic, uh, but it's good to see uh, some new blood up in the rankings there. Yeah, I think Cincinnati was uh, was was pretty interesting because like it was just so ho hum and no one really paid much attention, which was again kind of rare because a lot of these other teams we saw in the top ten struggle or at least it was more uncomfortable than we were expecting. Um, but Cincinnati's about to get into the meat of their schedule too with, with Indiana and Notre Dame, so I, I'm really excited for that. And I'm with you. I mean, I, I like when those teams make things interesting. I mean, I, I think one of the most read things I wrote last year was about the playoff rankings in Cincinnati and coastal and that they weren't getting treated fairly the way that other teams were or getting the benefit of the doubt because of, um, you know, not being in a power conference. And I think that that's part of what we love about college football is having those types of teams and feeling for them. Like who we were all staying up and watching coastal and you know, coastal BYU is the best game of the year and the best story of the year last year. And like, would people have thought that last summer that they would care so much about BYU coastal or coastal in general and, and the mullets and all of these things? No, like that's what, you know, you never really know where the season's going to take you. And so it, it sucks sometimes that it takes like a full year for then those teams to get like a kind of level of respect and the rankings and things that they probably deserved sooner. 
but that's how you get Cincinnati starting in the top 10. So I'm, I'm okay with that this year because they all came back to have this special season and I think they're going to be pretty good again. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think college, college football sometimes is a little bit of a slow moving ship. You know, it takes uh, time to build brands. It takes time for these teams to, to earn the respect and they, some of them just, they can't, they can't do it in one year, but I think, uh, I think you're right. Cincinnati is an example of given what they've done the last couple of years, they're coming into this year and, and people are like, yeah, Cincinnati won again. They won pretty handily. It's maybe a good sign for them that people uh, are not scrutinizing them as much, but I'm interested to see uh, how they do the rest of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I'd love, I'd love for them to stay close enough to the college football playoff conversation that we get to discuss them all year. Yep. I agree. Well, thanks, Nicole, so much for your insight and, and great to think about all those as we head into week two. And I know you're going to stick around and help us interview our next guest, who is a three-time Super Bowl champion, the first fullback to be selected to the Pro Bowl. But before all of that, he went to Nick's uh, alma mater, Syracuse, and uh, was an All-American there. Please welcome Daryl Johnston to the show. Daryl, it's great to have you. Nick Carparelli here. Great, uh, great to have you on the show. Always special for me to talk to a, a fellow Syracuse alum. And <laughs> I, I think we, 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 we're not going to want to bore the listeners, but you and I could probably talk all day about mutual friends that we uh, share, uh, share a fondness for. So we'll, uh, we'll have to do that at some point, but ju- jumping right in, you played in, uh, in three bowl games, uh, the, the cherry bowl. <laughs> which, uh, which, uh, which we all all remember well in 1985, yeah. uh, the Sugar Bowl on New Year's Day in 88, the Hall of Fame Bowl, which is now the Outback Bowl in 1989. Uh, you closed out your career in that game with a, with a win over LSU. Uh, what do you remember about, about that game, that last game of your college career? The LSU game was, uh, was very interesting because the setup at the stadium, both the locker rooms were backed up to each other. So uh, at that time, um, LSU being in the SEC, there, there still wasn't a lot of respect for uh, probably football from the north. Um, you know, even though we had gone to the Sugar Bowl the previous year and, and tied Auburn um, when they kicked the last second field goal to tie us. Uh, so you, you would have thought there would have been a little bit more respect from from an SEC opponent uh, because of what we'd done the previous season to their uh, to their co-conference champion. Um, but there, there was still that confidence, that swagger from the SEC that that they were better than than other conferences, and and we were still you know independents at the time. Uh, so our coach walked in, Dick McPherson walked into the locker room, and and instead of giving us a pregame speech, he had everybody get real quiet and said, "Just listen to what they think of you. That's that's all you need to hear before kickoff." And and we listened to LSU. Uh, as they tried to hype each other up, uh, how they were going to dismantle the boys from the North who don't know how to play football. And this is the SEC. And we're going to teach these guys a lesson. And we're all, we're all just sitting there going, do they realize that we can hear what they're saying right now? So that, that was probably uh, the, the best, the best idea I've seen by a coach in that situation was nothing he was going to say pregame was going to motivate us more than the opportunity to listen to what our opponent was saying about us at that time. So uh, we went out on the field. I think our first drive was 17 plays uh, and and went up seven, nothing and, and never really looked back. And, and, and that was a very good team. They, they really were, you know, a, a ton of respect for, for Auburn in the sugar bowl. And then, and then also LSU uh, in the hall of fame game. Um, it, it, it is, uh, it is exciting for us to, to have the opportunity to play an SEC team. And uh, you know, our, our two bowl games there at the end, I think we showed well uh, for, for a team from, uh, from central New York. 
Daryl, um, it's Nicole Auerbach. Thanks so much for um, making some time to chat. I, I, I'm curious about your first bowl experience when you're a young player and everyone talks about how much you get out of these types of experiences or even just how fun they are when you are young and getting to go somewhere at the end of the season to celebrate a season, um, but also just to get more practices and get those reps. Like what, what do you remember about it the first time you went when you were, you know, maybe, um, you know, just trying to get more snaps at that point in your career? Yeah, just a, a redshirt freshman that year and, and really just kind of on special teams and, uh, you know, trying to find your way and, and discover your role, uh, you know, for uh, your your skill set in the offense. Uh, <laughs> the one thing, as you point out, you know, kind of a reward, uh, you know, at the end of the season to go to a bowl game. And uh, when you leave Syracuse, New York, and where you land is actually colder and snowier, uh, <laughs> you know, it hasn't worked out real well. So Pontiac, Michigan, that day when we got there was, uh, <laughs> was, was very wintry. And, and we were playing Maryland, which if memory serves me correct, was the preseason number one that year. So kind of strange that they were, they were down at that level in that bowl game. Um, but you know, it was a two year run with the Cherry Bowl. Um, the, the people were fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I think, as you pointed out, for us, it was a great experience as a reward for our hard work to get some extra time, uh, you know, prepping for the next season, um, just really to, to be together as a team. Uh, you know, we were we were still trying to find our way there. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, that that bowl game, you know, even though uh, it, it was a, it was a short lived uh, celebration, you know, for the Cherry Bowl committee and everything that they did there. Yeah, I think for us, it did pay dividends. You know, it was that first step of being rewarded uh, for all the hard work. And then that kind of created that desire within our team uh, to see if we could make it to uh, to a higher level bowl moving forward. I, I think, Daryl, you make a good point there. We talk a lot about bowl season and the, and the various bowl games. They're all so meaningful to everybody. And, you know, the Cherry Bowl in, in that one year may not, it was not your best season, but it was certainly a building block towards uh, getting to the Sugar Bowl two years later. Um, and you know, you, you mentioned the sugar bowl, you know, I want to talk about that a little bit. That was after your junior year, of course, undefeated season, uh, Don McPherson was your quarterback, a good friend of both of ours, uh, runner up to the Heisman trophy, uh, famous 16, 16 tie, uh, as you mentioned, coach, uh, Pat Dye of Auburn elected to kick the field goal to tie it instead of going for the win. Uh, coach Mack was not uh, excited about that decision. Uh, he was pretty animated on the sidelines and, uh, I guess he was, he was, uh, wouldn't let go of the championship trophy, uh, after the game. Uh, I know Syracuse fans flooded the Auburn, uh, mailboxes, Auburn football office mailboxes with ties, uh, in the weeks after that game. So, uh, to tell us about your memories from that game. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, our fan base sent ties down to Auburn and then, uh, Auburn sent sour grapes, you know, back to Syracuse, uh, as <laughs> a little war happened afterwards. Um, you know, for us, uh, it was interesting because we were we were very multi-dimensional offensively. Um, but as you mentioned, Donnie McPherson was our quarterback. Um, yeah, I, I think the foundation of what we did was really kind of our freeze option and our speed option uh, on the edges. And, and Auburn was so athletic, you know, sideline to sideline that, that, you know, as we started to try to run the option, we, we realized, you know, that was not going to be very successful that day. Um, so we, we kind of shifted up and we we turned to a between the tackles run game. Uh, and, and that was the, one of the great things about that team uh, and that offense, uh, you know, what, what George DeLeon put together uh, for us was we could come to the line of scrimmage with, with five plays call and, and everybody knew by shades in the front, 
coverages, numbers in the box. We didn't we didn't have to wait for Donnie to give us the play call. So zero one freeze option on check 36, 37 power alert 59, ready break. And we go to the line of scrimmage and we've got five plays called. So we're either gonna we're gonna run the freeze option on your edges. We're gonna go power inside. And if you kind of you know crowd the box for our run game and are a little bit light on the back end, we, we've got an alert quick game called uh, with nine routes uh, on the outside. So um, you know, we, we felt very, very comfortable that even though we couldn't get outside against the athleticism of the Auburn defense, that we could come back inside and, and run and throw the ball well. So uh, when you sit back and, and, and rewatch that tape, um, gosh, I'm pretty sure we went over 200 yards rushing, you know, close to 250 yards rushing, you know, against Auburn, who was a top 10 rushing defense in the country that year, uh, and, you know, especially coming out of the SEC. Uh, so it was one of the things that we were really proud of, but a lot of people will go to the decision by Auburn to kick a field goal to tie that game. And I, I've talked to Tommy Agee, you know, who was at the University of Auburn. Um, and he said that uh, the, the, the decision there was we had quick kicked twice in that game. And that was one of the things that really stuck to them was, listen, these guys gave up on third down and kicked the ball. You know, so we're, we're not we're not losing to a team that's not playing to win. Um, so, I, you know, th that was the reasoning. And that, that kind of helped me out a little bit uh, with their decision to kick the field goal to tie us at the end. But for me, everything goes back to the third and one. You know, we had an opportunity on third and one uh, to really kind of take the rest of the time off the clock, kick that field goal to go up 16-13 and, and really limit the amount of time if there was going to be any time for Auburn to get the ball back and put themselves in a position to tie that game. So I, I will always bring it back to us on the offensive side of the ball with a critical snap in that game on a third and one uh, inside the 20-yard line. Uh, you know, we didn't get the job done. And, and we allowed Auburn the opportunity to go down the field and kick a field goal to tie us. Pretty good memory there, Daryl. Yeah, you, it's, kind of, it's, kind of burned, it's kind of burned in there a little <laughs> I can bit. tell. <laughs> I can tell. Well, tying games was actually nothing new for Auburn that, that year. That was their third tie of the I season. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. Wait, so do you, do you watch back Syracuse games often? Or you know, what, like what, what, what would cause you to reminisce and put something on? Getting, getting together with the guys um, or, uh, you know, every once in a while on, on, on television, they'll roll out some of the old classic games and all of a sudden your text will blow up, you know, Hey, it's the Syracuse Penn state game from 87. Um, and then, you know, you're just kind of chattering with everybody, you know, during the course of the game, but you know, we've got stuff on tape. I've, I've gone back and watched a couple of them. Uh, you go back and watch the hard ones. Um, our senior year, um, we ended up finishing the year, uh, with 10 wins, um, with the bowl, the bowl game victory against LSU, uh, we were nine and two regular season. Our, our two losses, we had 11 turnovers. Um, so we, we, we lost at Ohio state, uh, with I think five, and then we lost at West Virginia late in the year with six. So, you know, th those are the two games that you go back and you watch and, and, you know, we were, especially the Ohio state game, we, we were a better team than Ohio state that year. We just, we beat ourselves. Now, now West Virginia ended up being undefeated and they had major Harris and they were a really, really good team, uh, but we did not play well. We did not give them our best effort. Uh, but, it, but it was really disappointing, you know, and I've gone back and I've watched that Ohio state game. Um, and, and we just, we did not play well. Um, and, and Ohio state ended up not having a great year. So that, that was a loss that we, we would have loved to have had back and, you know, to throw, throw together an 11 one one and an 11 one season back to back would have been something really, really impressive, uh, you know, for the Syracuse football program. And that was kind of the stepping stone because because after that, Nicole, it was it was the uh, the Donovan McNabs, uh, yep. you know, Dwight Freeney's, Rob Conrad's, Marvin Harrison's, you know, th that 
that talent that came in after some of those those seasons that we had. I remember turning on the TV one time and, and Syracuse was at the big house and it was 31-7 in the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, th there was a Syracuse team a couple of years after we graduated th that I thought was probably better talent-wise than us, but I'll challenge anybody from chemistry culture standpoint to match that 87 team. That, that team was, we always, we always talk about football as a, as a second family. That 87 team really lived up to that mantra. And, and we may not have been as talented as some of the people we played, but nobody was tighter and closer and more of a family than we were. Yeah. Having, having been a part of that program, Daryl, there's, there's no question that uh, those years following uh, you know, your era, uh, those teams, those coaches would look back and, and refer to, to you guys as kind of the model and the, the guys who kind of built that program. You know, I was a GA there in 92 and 93. Uh, we went to Colorado and I uh, went to the Fiesta Bowl, beat Colorado in 92. Um, but, but I think a lot of young football fans would not uh, appreciate the fact that from 1987 to 2001, 15-year stretch, Syracuse went to 12 bowl games. Uh, and that was back when there was only 20 bowl games around. Yeah. Um, we played some pretty good football back then. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to those days. Well, and, and not just going to the bowl games, but I, I think, uh, you know, Paul tagging on to the end of, of Coach McPherson, I think it was nine consecutive wins or 11 consecutive wins. I mean, it yeah. was, it was even that, you know, the number to just to be able to go to a bowl game to qualify because you play well during the season, but then to get to that game and, 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 and play really, really well and to be able to string a bunch of victories together in bowl games uh, with the level of competition that you're playing. Especially, uh, especially when you're playing quality teams, like, like you guys did in those games, let me, you touched on, uh, you, you mentioned your teammates a little bit. You know, I always like to ask this question and this isn't just about bowl games. It's about your college football experience in general. We mentioned uh, Donnie Mack, uh, you know, Robert Drummond, uh, and you on offense, you had guys like, uh, Terry Wood and David Holmes, Rob Burnett. Uh, I promised myself I would mention, uh, our good friend, Marcus Paul, uh, on this, uh, yeah. we lost him uh, way too soon last year, just a, such a, such a great human being, but, the, but those guys, you know, you, you, you played in high school and you had some great friends. I'm, I'm sure. And still do to this day, that college experience is unique. NFL is, is a different game. Talk about, you know, your experiences in college, the friendships you made, the bonds you made and how that shaped uh, the rest of your life. Yeah, we still, um, we've got a very, very tight knit group. It was reunited with Marcus Paul last year. And, and that's one of the things that we've talked about. Oh, I'm going to forget a lot of guys. Um, and, and it's amazing how many guys we've lost that E17, but we've gone back and taken a look at that team photo. And it's amazing. You know, Chris Ingram is gone. Marcus Paul is gone. Pat Kelly is gone. Um, and, you know, I'm going to forget uh, uh, several of them, but it, it, that's the one thing that really kind of shakes us and, and makes us every day, you know, you know, by the grace of God that we're still here um, with our families uh, because they've left us and, and, and several others that, it, that I didn't mention. And, and that, that's been one of the tough things. And at that time, you're going through that growth and development. You know, it, it, the, the, the critical years, 18 to 22, 18 to 23, you know, the majority of us were redshirted. So we had five years together. Um, you overlap with, you know, the, the class that comes in behind you, the class that was there ahead of you. Um, we just did a, a fundraiser Marcus back in Syracuse in, in June, and we had a stretch of 11 years. So you're there for five, but you've got 11 years where guys overlap a little bit. 
And it was amazing to see the turnout. I mean, Rudy Reed, who was one of the captains on the defense when we came in in 1984, and everybody was terrified of him. You know, there Rudy Reed, you know, at Marcus's, you know, celebration. Uh, and then and then guys that were there as freshmen when Marcus was a senior and graduating, and they talked about Marcus, you know, to the guys, you know, that were, that were coming in for the next four years. So we all think of this, this short window of four to five years while you're on campus, you know, but the impact you make stretches out over a decade. As, as the classes overlap and the stories continue. I mean, we heard about Jamie Kimmel and, you know, all the stuff that those guys did. Uh, you know, we were only there for a year or two together, but, you know, it was infamous, the stories that, that came out. Um, and, and you grow together, you find yourselves together. Um, the friendships and, and, you know, just the struggles that you go through, I think, is what forms that bond. And, you know, it, it really is, is a, a unique thing. And, when everything happened last summer, you know, after the George Floyd uh, death and what had happened at Syracuse University kind of going in towards the end of the, the fall semester, and there was a, a, an issue based on race uh, um, on, on campus that, that was very inflammatory. Um, our group circled up in June and just, you know, we, we needed to talk through things and, and we had I mean, it was, it was a perfect split. There were eight white guys and eight black guys on the phone just talking and sharing and everything that we can do. And, and I remember Donnie being really concerned about, you know, what was going to happen in the fall of 2020 when everybody came back onto campus because they hadn't really put that fire out from December of the previous year. Uh, right when they were getting back onto campus, everything got closed down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that, that was the type of group that we had. And I learned things about my teammates that I did not know while I was there at school with them. And hopefully they learned things from us that they didn't know about us. And it was a really, it was a really unique environment and a really unique sharing situation uh, where people were very open. Uh, but that, that's why that team did what they did as a football team, because they weren't just good football players. They were good young men who became good men later in life. And, and that was that was one of the things that that Dick McPherson had a knack for. I don't know how he did it, but the kids that he recruited were good kids and they became good men as they got older. And uh, I, I just it, it, it was a unique skill. Um, I've talked to other people, you know, at the NFL level, you're going to meet guys from different universities and you talk to them. And, and I just don't think anybody had the experience that we had at Syracuse University, especially that 1987 class. And I'll always, I'll always be grateful that I came there in 1984 and had the class that I had. And, uh, you know, the class above me was great. The class below us was great. Um, you know, th th it was just a three-year stretch there where, where there was just such quality guys. And they're, they're still great people and great friends to this day. Yeah, you were mentioning, you know, you hear from people who go to other programs and different experiences. I'm, I'm trying to think like, it's got to be so rare that you guys were having that type of conversation summer of 2020, all these years later and can have that openly and honestly. And it just feels like it's such an, a testament to that group of, of players and the relationships that you have, that you can talk about race and, and racism and like all these years later in a phone call and be, be open and honest. It was amazing. It was amazing because you could see the hesitancy when we were starting to arrange the call. There were, you knew there were conversations that were going on that were not inclusive of the 16 that were eventually on that call just to check the temperature. Are we doing the right thing? Is, is this something that, that could damage the relationships that we have right now? Because this is a very, this is a very tenuous situation. You know, who, who knows what direction this is going to go with? 
Um, so there, there was a little bit of trepidation, you know, from some of the guys to actually enter into this conversation and, and, and it couldn't have gone better. It couldn't have gone better. Um, so it is challenging as that was is, is much hesitancy as there was from some of the guys, the people who felt it was critically important at that time were able to get everybody to come to the table and just try, let's just try and see where this goes. And I think we were all shocked uh, and pleasantly surprised to see what direction it went and how far it carried. There obviously had to be a lot of trust involved in order for the 16 of you to be willing to go into that conversation and, and, and open yourselves up like that. I think that probably speaks to the, you know, the quality of your experience at Syracuse, obviously the bond you guys had. And, 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 you know, to my question here, uh, to, to coach Mack, you mentioned that, you know, you played for coach Mack. He's, he was a, uh, he became a mentor to me as well. Just a great man. Tell me, tell me what it was like playing for coach Mack and some of the things you learned from, from him. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Uh, probably more like a father than a coach, you know, for, for me, um, you know, I'm very similar to, to my father in, in the demands that he had. Uh, so for me, you know, some guys are like, oh, this guy is so hard. Oh my gosh. You know, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you do this day after day? You just work and grind and do everything. <laughs> he's so, he's so similar to my father. You wouldn't believe it. And, and the guys that knew my dad were like, oh yeah, he's just like Butch. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was easy. It was transitioning from, you know, an environment I grew up with, with my, with my dad is, is the, the lead male in the house to going now to a football program and your head coach is very, very similar personality wise, uh, you know, demanding, uh, expects your best every day. Um, but just, I tell people all the time, I learned more about life than I learned about the game of football from Dick McPherson. He was one of those guys that was unique that it had no ego. He would delegate authority down to everybody else. You know, the X's and O's and all that was taught by position coaches and coordinators and things like that. He was the best manager, overseer, knowing what buttons to push, how to motivate every single person on that team. Um, as a as a guy overseeing everything, I, I haven't been around anybody who's who's really kind of done it better. And and I mean, Jimmy Johnson was obviously amazing here in Dallas. But Dick McPherson was just incredibly unique at knowing exactly what our team needed. Going back to that speech before the LSU game, um, we had to pull him out of two situations where he was going to get into a fight with opposition fans. We were, we were at Penn State. And at the time, you know, they got the little they got the little like trailers underneath the grandstands, for, you know, it, you know, offenses in one defenses in the other. Well, he brings us all together as a team into one of those those units. And he said, you know, guys, listen, this is this is the last game of a long series and there's going to be a lot of emotion out there tonight. Uh, you know, keep your wits about you. Don't don't let the crowd be a factor in this game. You know, let's just go out there. Let's play our game. And so as, as we're leaving the, the trailer, you know, you've got a path that takes you out to the field and it is lined like seven deep on each side with all Penn State fans. And after after giving us the speech of keeping our wits about ourselves because it's going to be an emotional game as we're walking through the path. Somebody yells from the back, hey, McPherson, it's your fault that the rivalry dies tonight. Dick McPherson goes into the crowd to go after the guy. I mean, Marcus and I had to literally go in and grab him and pull him back. And <laughs> Coach, we got to get to the field. Remember what you said to us before the game. Don't let the crowd get to you. So he was just, he was fiery. Um, he just, you know, I, I know that wasn't intentional. That was just, that was Dick McPherson, a fiery Scotsman that was going in to defend his team and, and his reputation. So 
uh, he, he was awesome. He was, well, he, uh, he was he, such he, a great guy. He was certainly known for his sayings that he liked to repeat. I'm going to, I'm going to start one of his sayings and I guarantee you're going to be able to finish it. You ready? Yep. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts. It'd be Christmas every day. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, Daryl, we're going to wrap this up. Our, our last segment, we call this our fourth and one segment. This is really quick. I'm going to, I'm going to give you four, uh, four, uh, four subjects and you need to answer it. Either the first word that comes to your mind, it could be a phrase or sentence, but just the first, first thought that comes into your mind. Syracuse University. Oh, starting point. Dallas Cowboys. America's team. Dick McPherson. Hmm. Father figure. Fullback. Grit. All right. Very good. Um, Daryl, thank you so much for being on the, on the show. It's been a pleasure for me. I'm sure we'll talk again in the future. Go orange. Uh, Nicole, uh, thank you as well for, for, uh, uh, chatting at the beginning and helping me ask Daryl questions, questions along the way. I'm sure we'll talk again during the season. Thank you both for being on the show. Absolutely. Take Anytime. Care. We're going to take a short break and be right back with the Duke's Mayo Bowl executive director, Danny Morrison. Stay with us. Ticket Smarter is the official ticket resale marketplace of bowl season. Nothing compares to the power and excitement of live events. Ticket Smarter is the smarter way to buy tickets for live events like sports, concerts, and theater. Visit TicketSmarter.com or download the app today. Welcome back to Bowl Season Stories, and we're now ready to hear from our next guest. Danny Morrison is the executive director of the Duke's Mayo Bowl in Charlotte, North Carolina, and just coming off a huge weekend as the Duke's Mayo Classic featured ECU versus App State and that key matchup of week one, Georgia versus Clemson. Danny, how are you doing? Oh, good. Thanks for having me. Well, Danny, it's, uh, you know, we talked earlier in the show. It's so good to have college football back. The season kicked off this past weekend with a bang. Thanks in large part to your your two games, the Dukes Mayo Bowl Classics. Uh, tell us about how those games came together and what it felt like to have college football back in such a big way. Well, we couldn't be more pleased. Uh, it was a great weekend in Charlotte. In fact, I'm not sure there'll be a better weekend in all of college football during the regular season. Uh, with App State and East Carolina on a Thursday night. And then we actually had another game on Friday night. It wasn't at Bank of America Stadium, but it was at Charlotte. So you had Charlotte Duke uh, playing on the Charlotte campus. And then, of course, we had um, Georgia and Clemson, a top five matchup on Saturday night. So I don't think there's a better um, weekend of college football. We had game day here on Saturday morning. Energy, vibrancy, um, as you well know, it takes everybody to make it work. And one of the blessings we have in uh, Charlotte is we really have so much harmony among the CRVA and the city, the county, Bank of America Stadium and the Panthers. And of course, it takes everybody to put it on. And I was so proud of our staff and the great job that they did in pulling all, all this together. So it was a great weekend. Uh, we originally had Appalachian State and East Carolina scheduled for a Saturday night. And then two years ago, I guess it was about two years ago, Greg McGarity and Dan Radakovich, uh, we were talking about bringing this game to Charlotte. Uh, they were great. And then uh, we got great cooperation from uh, Doug Gillen at App State and uh, John Gilbert at East Carolina. We, we were able to move the game to Thursday night. 
make a mega weekend out of it. I think everybody benefited by having uh, uh, the tight time frame. And uh, it's always nice to be lucky. We've had, we had three of the most gorgeous days you could ever have in uh, Charlotte on the Labor Day weekend. So it came together beautifully. Uh, and it was a fun weekend just to see people having a good time and vibrancy and best of all for an industry that just got crushed, the hospitality industry, uh, to see the hotels full, the restaurants full. It just made a great weekend and it's rewarding to see that kind of impact. And as you well know, our mission is to um, bring high profile sporting events to Charlotte that also have an economic impact. And certainly that was accomplished this past weekend. Well, you're, you've been with the Duke's Mail Bowl for a couple of years now, but you're certainly no stranger to Charlotte, having worked for many years for the Carolina Panthers. Uh, you're, the way you answered that previous question, it's clear to all of us that the passion you have for Charlotte and Charlotte sports. Uh, tell us about the bowl game itself. What, what does the Duke's Mayo Bowl mean to the entire community of Charlotte? Well, first of all, we have an amazing uh, partner in Duke's Mayo. Uh, not only um, are they a Southern iconic brand, but they like to have fun with the brand. And we negotiated this whole um, sponsorship partnership uh, during the pandemic. So they then we get in, we thinking that it's only going to be a month or two or three months. Then we get to last year and we have our neutral site game with uh, Notre Dame and Wake Forest. It gets moved four times and finally gets canceled. We get to uh, the first Duke's Mayo Bowl and we can only have 1,500 um fans there. We had a great game with Wisconsin and Wake Forest. Uh, the economic impact is still um, uh, major, even with a no fan situation. But I was so uh, proud of the, you want to work with great people. And that's what uh, the leadership of Duke's great people. Uh, they never panicked through the pandemic year. Uh, we pivoted uh, umpteen times, and every time we pivoted, uh, there was no gnashing of teeth. It was just a reality. It's what we're dealing with. We'll find a way to make it work. So now, to come into this 21 year where we had the great uh, weekend this past weekend, and now as we point towards the Duke's Mayo Bowl, and we can get back to activating a lot of our events, like we incorporate a driving experience for all the players at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, which they're a terrific partner as well. We have a unique uh, belt shopping spree. And so uh, we're going to get back to uh, the experiences for the players that we like to see, the experiences for the fans. Uh, the beauty of Charlotte is that uh, fans can drive into the uptown area, which is a beautiful skyline, plenty to do restaurants, park the car, walk everywhere, and then walk to the stadium. So the bowl, um, the bowl has a significant um, economic impact. And the reason is that uh, the duration, there's four, they're here five days, four days, and fans come, and it comes at a time when there's not as much activity around the Christmas season. So that certainly is another, uh, 
positive thing on the hospitality industry. Prior to coming to Charlotte, Danny, you were the athletic director at TCU in the mid 2000s. When you were there, uh, Coach Patterson took the Frogs to the Texas Bowl twice, uh, Poinsettia Bowl in San Diego. What do you remember about those experiences for those TCU teams and, and the student athletes back before you were in the bowl business, but you were participating in bowl games as an athletic director? Well, first of all, there's no uh, bigger advocate for the bowl system than Gary Patterson. He, he, he embraced every single bowl. He loved uh, bowl week. Uh, he made it fun for the players. He also wanted them to enjoy it as a reward for a regular season. And he also recognized the importance of the game, though. So he did a, an amazing job of balancing all that. So not only did you have fun, but you had, uh, 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 it was a reward and the importance of the game. His bowl record's uh, pretty spectacular. So he gets it. Uh, he, he loves the bowl system. Uh, and, and I always appreciated how he really embraced uh, the whole bowl experience. You know, when you transferred from being an AD to an executive director, executive directors are, are a little bit of a club, right? They're, uh, there are a group of guys who are, you know, they're, they're, they're my bosses. I, I tell people all the time, I have 44 bosses. You're, you're one of them, Danny. Uh, so hopefully I'm doing a good job, but they, um, you know, I love my job because the executive directors are such good people. You know, I, I think you have to be a good person to have that job. You're in the hospitality business. Um, you, you want people to, it, it's, it's serious business. You're doing a lot of great things in the community, but you want people to have fun and, uh, and experience everything that bowl games have to offer and the communities have to offer. As you transition into an executive director role, though, you know, you were the new guy coming in a couple of years ago. Tell me about your, your, um, your colleagues, you know, who, who, who did you lean on during that transition? Were there any bowl executive directors that, that were, that were uh, uh, you know, more helpful than others to you as you made that transition? Well, first of all, I would agree with you one, in, in general about uh, college athletics is that in general, I think the predominance of really, really good people throughout uh, college athletics. And uh, that's certainly true with the uh, executive directors of the various bowls. Uh, I've been on the job now about two years, and I can tell you who's been a great mentor has been Will Webb, the previous uh, executive director. I was on the board of the Charlotte Sports Foundation when I was with the Panthers, and uh, got to watch uh, Will's incredible work. And so when, when I came on board a couple of years ago, uh, I really leaned on uh, Will Webb. He's been a, a great uh, uh, mentor for me. Um, uh, Wright Waters, uh, Nick, and we're so thrilled to have you in this position and what you mean for our whole uh, bowl season, the rebranding and all the efforts that uh, you uh, undertook in, really short order um, has proved to pay a lot of dividends. So I love the rebranding of the bowl season. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, my first year or so, we were um, in a COVID environment, so we didn't get to meet as regularly as we would have uh, liked to do. We came from our meeting uh, out in uh, Scottsdale. That was a great meeting with all the bowl execs. and. We have a, a really a great fraternity. I have high regard for all of them, and I really look forward to um, 
getting to know each one um, better. The Duke's Mayo Bowl is scheduled for Thursday, December 30th at 1130 a.m. Eastern time at Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina. The game will air on ESPN. Danny, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Good luck the rest of the season. Great. Thanks for having me. And thank all of you for joining us uh, on this week's Bowl Season Stories podcast. Please join us next week when we will welcome Grace Rayner from The Athletic and Notre Dame legend Rocket Ismail. If you like the show, we'd appreciate you dropping a five-star rating for the podcast. And as always, you can follow all the podcast and Bowl Season news on social media at Bowl Season. Thank you for listening. Ah!